Hi, I'm Chris Martin. And I'm Andrew McIntosh. And we are your hosts on the Primate Cast. Today we're going to talk to Dr. Roger Mundry, who's the resident statistician at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology. Yeah, so one of our major objectives here at SciCASP, which I'll remind everybody is PRI's international center, is to bring in kind of international speakers that can help to our educational purposes uh, at the Institute here. You know, we often have intensive lectures done by researchers from within Japan, but now we're starting to have the opportunity as well to bring people in from outside, and we hope to kind of broaden the perspectives of our students as well as faculty here at the Institute. That's right. And so, Andrew, you and I both work for SciCASP, the International Center, and the first speaker that was brought in by SciCASP was actually in the podcast, Dr. Lawrence Anthony. Yeah, and you can look that up on the podcast number, the primate cast number three. Um, and he came to give a morning workshop on kind of introducing the use of corpus linguistics and corpus tools in helping people develop their technical writing skills. And that was really great to have him. And so Roger Mundry then was somebody that we invent, invited from Germany to spend actually more time here. It was, a, it was a workshop that spanned over a week. That's right. And he was here to talk about statistics and specifically some of the pitfalls involved in statistics like multiple testing, data, data dredging, and also giving a broad overview of the use of general linear models within the framework of our statistical software. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a very um, great educational opportunity for a few uh, reasons. I think for me, the main uh, thing that stood out was that he is very familiar with the kind of statistical problems that primatologists face. So he's not just a normal statistician. He's a statistician that deals every day with primatologists and our statistical problems. And so it was really nice to kind of get his perspective here at the PRI. Yeah, and that's something that'll come out a bit later during the interview. But that's one of the reasons why we targeted him specifically as well. You know, it's very rare to see within primatology or anthropology departments or research institutes a dedicated statistician. Um, and so many of the problems that he is forced to deal with on a day-to-day basis are very relevant to us, to our institute, and hopefully to the listeners out there. So we hope to gain some insights. Absolutely. So without further ado, here is Roger Mundry. So Roger, how long have you been at MPI? Uh, a little more than six years now. Yeah. And so what is your official capacity? Uh, officially, I'm responsible for helping people from the departments of development of psychology and primatology with their statistics, and that's pretty much what I'm doing there all the time. <laughs> Occasionally, I'm helping also people from the other departments, and I'm also quite busy with teaching. Right. Yeah. It sounds like you're very busy. Yes, Thank I you. am. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the things I think a lot of people here appreciated um, in hearing your talks was that it, they were presented by what everybody could see very clearly was a biologist rather than a pure statistician. So, mm-hmm. Yes, I, I am a biologist by training and I never got any formal uh, training in statistics so I taught all that stuff my, to myself in a way and of course I benefited a lot from meeting people who some only just gave me books to read or articles that I were asked, was asked to check whether that could be helpful, but also there were some people I learned a lot from. So, but basically I'm a biologist and I got interested in statistics because I wanted to learn something about the animals I studied and that uh, yeah, meant that I had to worry about statistics. And then I discovered statistics also to be a very interesting field. And mm-hmm. so now I'm working as a statistician. Currently, in taking the world of primatology, for an example, I think MPI now is, is a bit of an example 
because I don't know of too many anthropology or primatology departments or institutes that have their very own dedicated statistician. Yeah, uh, to my knowledge, most of them don't have a dedicated statistician, statistician and that's uh, something I am suffering from occasionally because <laughs> people from all over the world tend to approach me. Um, the, the primatology world is pretty small, so I mean, you, you don't... You just get to know, be known by many people pretty soon from collaborations which you have, and then you get these emails from people from remote places you've never heard about those people, and they send you emails asking questions about statistics. I try to do what I can, but you can imagine that this, it can be quite overwhelming at occasions, and um, it's not easy for me to always catch up with all the issues coming in. But there would be definitely more need for statisticians in other places, so... Um, it's good that they have one in Leipzig and um, actually we are even searching for a second now because that's so much work to be done. Mm -hmm. um, but there will be, would be definitely more places, not only in primatology but in biology in general and mm -hmm. maybe also psychology where more regular statistical advice would probably be a good idea. Absolutely beneficial. I think having here at PRI has maybe kind of uh, laid that kind of seed into other people too. So that <laughs> We can get either bring you back on a regular basis, which would be fantastic, or even take some some lead from MPI. Mm. But can you give us an idea then about some of the projects that you're that you have been involved with at MPI? And yes, um, so you, I mean, first of all, I'm involved in pretty much every kind of project dealing with genetics, cognition, ecology, behavior, culture, pretty much everything you can think of, mm -hmm. and also linguistics and development of children, and pretty much really everything. I personally, at the moment, am particularly engaged in more large-scale ecological studies, some of which really cover the entire Great Ape Range in Africa, mm -hmm. and um, they are, say, pretty computation intensive in the first place so it just needs a huge amount of programming and computers may be running for more than a month to get the analysis completed <laughs> stuff like that and also from the perspective of data processing they might be fairly complex because it's a whole lot of fairly different data so maps for instance showing certain ecological gradients over entire Africa some of them having a resolution of 200 by 200 meters so mm -hmm. it's also large amounts of data to be processed, but also data about abundance or presence of apes in certain areas, protection measures, um, economical variables. So we also incorporate things like gross domestic product and corruption indices. So they are complex analyses and I like them a lot. So um, complex models to understand pretty complex questions and they, they need more input from my side because uh, the students, at least initially, they are quite overwhelmed by the by the amount and also the complication of the tasks to be done. So merging all these very different kinds of data, geographical, economical data, ecological data. So that takes some time and effort. But I like these studies a lot and they challenge me to some extent. They make me thinking about the ecology of great apes mm. and what can be done about their protection. So I think it's also very relevant. So these studies are not just, um, say, you do something and eventually you get some significant effects or nice models, but they really might matter also for future decisions which uh, might be made about how to protect great apes, which is a very 
big issue. So what person? So the, it seems like there's a few aims from these studies. There's a conservation aim, and then there's also kind of a scientific aim of figuring out distributions of apes across Africa. So what's what's kind of the main priority for that for that study? Uh, first of all, it's a whole bunch of studies, okay. so it's not a single study. But um, sure. I, when 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 I came here, I, I considered for a moment to give also a talk what I'm doing personally, and that would have been. I now didn't give it because I didn't find the time to prepare. But it would probably have been my first talk as a primatologist. Yeah. So like coming out <laughs> as a primatologist. So originally, <laughs> I was an ornithologist, and I'm still very interested in birds. So my heart is still beating for the birds and when I see something outside the window then I need to have a look at it and I can get very excited <laughs> about birds but I, I realized when I when I thought about what could I talk about that actually I'm much more involved in primates, primatology, red apes than I am in birds now mm. and um, so then I thought about what could be the different projects I was involved in or am currently involved in. Um, I could say a few words about that. And they cover a whole bunch of problems. So some of them deal with uh, habitat changes in Africa over the entire Great Range and um, how that might impact the suitability of the habitat for great apes. And the change of that seemed to be quite dramatic. Mm -hmm. in the past decades, decades. Um, so that's more like a general question about what's going on in Africa. So I mean, we, we don't really know too much about um, habitat suitability for great apes over the entire range. There's a whole bunch of studies for certain areas, but right. it has never been combined on a larger scale. But other studies also deal with, say, countrywide models where we look at, for instance, um, human impact and it's not always such that areas where there are more human activities are those which are worse for great apes so it seems that there are places where great apes and humans can get along quite well with one another so that's another perspective what we also look at um, for instance infectious diseases and their impact on ape abundance protection measures we had one recent study which is published already which shows that if you have protected areas if you don't do any measures like putting guards in there or having activities of NGOs, you have a high risk of great apes to get extinct within the protected areas. So these are studies I'm involved in and I, for me it would be hard to classify them into say more applied or more fundamental sure, research. Sure. Most of them they have some phase it's related to both aspects I would say. Okay, mm -hmm. that's interesting. Yeah, at our own field site um, in Guinea Basu, West Africa, um, we have, there's this problem of isolated forest. So there's a group of chimps, 14 chimps, and they live in this very small pocket of forest that's surrounded by savanna, and they're just kind of stuck there. They can't get to the nearest big forest because they're worried about crossing the savanna, and the chimps don't do that. So I think that might be a problem around a lot of West Africa is these isolated groups and then they run into genetic problems in the long run. Yeah, I guess it is. And actually, just right now, I mean, before I came here, I was involved in a project and I will be involved again when I come back, where we try to uh, just not, not just measure, say, habitat suitability, but also, say, connectivity of the habitat, so mm -hmm. that we don't look at an isolated patch, is it good or bad, but we try to measure the quality of the patch also in terms of how well it is connected mm -hmm. with other places and how 
easier it would be for grade A to pass from one patch to the other. It appears to be more complicated than you originally thought, but that's part of the fun of the job, that you are challenged by new questions and problems mm -hmm. again and again. <laughs> that's interesting. Absolutely. So I think from a researcher's perspective, we typically have you know, maybe a couple of main topics that we, that we focus in depth on, and maybe we get to know those topics really well, and even the data that we end up using for the main purpose of those topics. But for somebody like yourself, you're confronted with so many different types of challenges, a very diverse set of research questions, and then trying to figure out ways to analyze those independent or independently or in some or whatever. So what was that like for you when you first came to MPI or had you already started along that path long before that? I mean, when I came to MPI, I was initially absolutely overwhelmed. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't have much knowledge about primatology and psychology. Of course, I was reading papers in journals like Animal Behavior, and I, I knew to some extent what the people were doing in the Institute, but of course, not much details. And uh, before I came, there was a two-month gap where they had no statistician. So from the first day on, I had just a huge crowd in my office pretty constantly. <laughs> Uh, asking me questions and uh, I mean you know that um, people have their specialized terminology so they spoke with me about bias in Africa I had no idea what a bias was later I learned that it's a huge clearing which is there for natural reasons and then many elements go there occasionally because there are some things they like to eat I don't really know what it is but they are pretty attractive for elephants and gorillas and stuff like that Plus, people were, people were speaking with me about these bias as if it is completely known to everyone on about what a bias <laughs> I never heard about that. And there were many other things like false belief tasks, which the psychologists mm -hmm. do and things like that. And mm -hmm. I didn't know that, so I, there were lots, plenty of new things to learn. So, uh, but it was, at the same time, it was also very exciting to get to know about all these concepts and things people investigate. Now it's easier for me because, I mean, after six years, I kind of have an idea of what these people are doing. I'm kind of acquainted with their, with the experimental designs and psychology and the questions the primatologists are addressing. From a statistical perspective, it is, it is less diverse. So there's lots of crossbreeding uh, between different challenges, tasks, mm -hmm. and it quite frequently happens to me that I spend a day or two or a week with particularly focusing on one project and I do something pretty weird, unknown to me, new with regard to the statistics and just a few days later someone having a completely different question um, coming to my office, it appears that actually what I just learned about recently could be very helpful in that <laughs> context as well. So the statistics that I'm using are not too diverse and some of the tools like linear models they just provide a very general framework with which you can address a whole bunch of questions which are not really related at all so I'm using for instance linear models a lot in various contexts. Yeah and it was interesting you know last night at dinner Dr. Furici made the comment that in you know for example the field of physics things tend to move towards you know, these unifying theories and now at least in some fields of statistics, he noticed a potential parallel in general and generalized linear models, which within the same or similar statistical framework are, are able to tackle you know, so many different types of problems. It is a very unified, uh, very general framework, this generalized linear model. And it's a little sad, actually, that we didn't find the time to speak about the generalized linear model in this course, because it really provides a very, very flexible framework for addressing questions. And it's also... 
um, say that the mathematical machinery behind that is pretty much used in the exact same way in a frequentist approach as well as in an information theoretic approach to statistics but also the Bayesians use pretty much the same underlying math mathematical machinery so mm -hmm. it's a very general flexible framework still um, I'm also using a whole bunch of other things like for instance non-parametric statistics I still think they have a sense, they have a meaning, they are useful, they are applicable only to very simple designs, research questions, but then they also give very simple answers, which yeah. is good. So these complex models, they also can give complex answers and sometimes people say design studies which are too complicated for the questions they want to address and then they get kind of overwhelmed by the complexity of the analysis and also the answers that they get. <laughs> and if they would have designed a more simple study, then maybe just a simple Wilcoxon test or a Spearman correlation would have pretty much expressed quite well what they wanted to know. And in such cases, I, I think the simpler methods have still some right to exist, mm -hmm. and I still use them. So just briefly going back into this uh, workshop that you gave here at the PRI, it was very clear that for you, um, maybe it's the way that you do statistics, but also the way that you teach it, uh, was by combining theory and then practical application using R. Okay, so for maybe for you those two things kind of go very, very well together. So do you think that's something that you would highly recommend to people? Yes, definitely. I mean, first of all, R is just the future of statistics. I, I don't see any <laughs> space for commercial packages in the near future. I mean, there will still be some institutions and people buying them, but R provides just so much more flexibility and it, it allows to handle so much more kinds of data than any of these commercial packages that I don't really see much need in using them. And it makes, on the long run, it makes life easy because you don't have to learn like three, four, five, ten different programs and how to use them and all that related to dealing with them. But you just have to learn one program and it, it is pretty much the same logic that you use for handling geographical data, acoustic data. Mm -hmm any kind of data you could even think of. So R is just a great thing, first of all. And then secondly, I think at least uh, on the intermediate, inter intermediate term, R also really makes it easy to explore data, understand data, understand the output of statistical models. So everything is pretty much at your fingertips. So if you run a model and you want to understand what does it reveal, is it a good model, does it fit well, are there any issues with that model, it's pretty easy to extract all that using R. It has absolutely fantastic graphic capabilities, another reason to use it. And with regard to, say, teaching theory and practical application, pretty much, um, how do you say that, um, just closely tied together interwoven is that the right term interwoven, yeah. yeah i think it is very useful because i mean first of all teaching theory for six eight hours a day <laughs> everyone would be asleep after 90 or 120 minutes so just having practical things in between it wakes people up it makes them doing something active but also i think the practical application it helps a lot in understanding the models right so these theoretical concepts they are theoretical concepts and dealing with them practically and making experiences about say what is an interaction and how is it modeled and exploring what it means practically using some data set it makes it much more accessible for the people to understand what these models are doing so that's why i think teaching two things at the same time statistics and r 
is a challenge for many students, but I think also that eventually it pays. Maybe one more word about teaching just R. So I was occasionally invited to give a course just about using R. Um, how to run linear models in, in R. And uh, whenever I taught such a course, it appeared that there were also quite considerable gaps in the knowledge that people had with regard to the underlying concepts. And that's mm. why I don't really like to do it. So, I mean, of course, you can teach people how to run linear models, but then they m might maybe uh, use stepwise uh, in conjunction with, with linear models, which I would not advise at all for a whole bunch of reasons. So, um, or they might misunderstand concepts related to interactions and building models with interactions included. And, and, and so that's why I feel not very comfortable in just showing people how to do things without also explaining some of the concepts. Most people are not as familiar with the concepts as they need to be. So what is in store for the future of Roger Mundry? Nothing particular. I'm <laughs> extremely happy at the Max Planck Institute. I really like it a lot to work there. It's a very interesting place with regard to the scientific part of the work, but it's also very pleasant to be there. It's a very, very casual atmosphere. I mean, the, the Institute is very challenging to me and they definitely expect all of us to do a great work, but they also give us all the support we need. So it is a new experience for me to work in a place like that before I've been working at universities in Germany and there just to get connected to a printer. It can take like <laughs> three weeks or something <laughs> like that. And then still it doesn't work on Leipzig. Things like that are impossible if you have a problem and it's solved right away. So people are very friendly and it's a really nice place to work. So I hope to stay there as long as I can. And um, that's the plan. So I don't really, I never really made plans for my life mm. and uh, ended where I ended and I'm happy about it. So we're going to see what the future <laughs> brings. I well, we're also happy that part of it ended landed with you being here in Japan with us. So thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for inviting us. Thanks for pleasure joining. to be here. Great. And thanks for joining the podcast. So we hope to see you in the future. Okay. All Looking right. forward to it.